0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hey everybody, so this week before we get into the message, I want to take a minute and just call us to pray. Every week at CBC before we listen to the Word of God spoken and before we read it together, we pray. We pray because we want to move our hearts from critics to contributors of the conversation Jesus is having in our world. And, And this week has been hectic, last week has been hectic, the world seems like it's chaotic. At the heart of it is a conversation about what is equality and what is justice and And justice and the gospel go hand in hand. And so before we begin the message, we're going to take time to pray. It's going to be a little longer time, and it'll be about the message this morning. And also just pray for our country and for our people. Because one thing we know, that churches around the world have spoken out against is racism, and there's no room for racism for followers of Jesus. Because fundamentally, followers of Jesus acknowledge one thing, that the merit that they have doesn't come from them, but comes from Jesus. It's why he calls us, first and foremost, to acknowledge that we are all poor in spirit. And so in this moment, we sit and we stop, and we recognize that we need help, and we recognize that we live in an unjust world, and we pray. Because that's what we do when we don't know what to do, and that's what we do when we do know what to do. Because as we pray, we expect God to move, and we stop, and we listen. Because so I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to fix the problems that have been created over generations and, and generations in our country. But I do know a good place to start is to bring them to God and to stand up and say that all people are made in His image. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to pray. And as we talk about this ongoing conversation of justice and racism culturally, know one or two things. One is that there's this fear that you have to say the perfect thing at the perfect time. And I, for one, am grateful that that I don't always say the perfect thing. And I, for one, am grateful that I'm not called as a Christian to be perfect. I'm called to acknowledge that I'm not and that Jesus is. And so as we have conversations in our culture about race and justice, know that God calls us to a higher standard. He calls the church to stand for justice, and he calls us all to pray. And so next week, we're going to do a little more and pray for our country a little more as we start to reopen and regather at CBC on Sunday mornings. But for right now, just take a minute before we dive into the Word And pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit might teach you something this morning as we talk about Jesus' authority, and pray that God might be teaching us culturally as we lean into the hope that we find in Christ. So, so today I want to talk a little bit about power and authority. It's going to launch us into a, a three-week series on the authority or the trustworthiness of Jesus. There's been so many conversations about what power is and its relationship to authority and how those two things go hand in hand over really all of mankind. In the 6th century BC, there was the seven wise men of Greece, or the seven sages. One of them, a man named uh, Pitykus. He had a comment on power when he said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. And these were seven men that gathered together and they were known for their wisdom. And he said thousands of years ago that men are measured by how they use the power they have. Lord Acton in the 19th century uses a phrase we are more familiar with, that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then about 150 years ago, in the middle of the 1800s, into the 1900s, there's a a German sociologist known as kind of one of the fathers, fathers of sociology, named Max Weber, and he said that power is the ability to exercise one's will over others. And he goes on to explain the relationship between power and authority. He says that power is the ability to exercise one's will over others. Authority refers to accepted power. That is power that people agree to follow. Okay, so here's where I bring all that up. Because right now, I think we have a moment in our culture where we're questioning power and where we're questioning authority. I think right now, fundamentally, we have a narrative where power is corruptive and authority is being abused. And I want to talk about that for a second. Because I think those conversations bleed into the authority that we're called to under Jesus. There's a Pew Research Center poll poll about public trust in government this last year. And it says that our public trust in the government remains at historic lows. Only 17% of Americans say they can trust the government right now. 17%. Out of that 17%, 3% say that they can trust the government to do right just about all the time. And 14% say most of the time. Which means that 83% of Americans don't feel like they can trust their government. There's a marketing firm called Edelman and every year they put out a trust index and they surveyed 33,000 people from over 28 countries and they found in 2019 in their trust poll that America is now the home to the least trusting informed public of the 28 countries that the firm surveyed right below South Africa. We have a trust issue, a problem, because we've seen authority be abused and we've seen power be corrupt. But, but, but it's beyond just I can't trust my government. It's beyond I can't trust the authorities that people put in front of me. What, what happens and what the Pew Research Survey found was that levels of personal trust tend to be linked to levels of institutional trust, meaning when one breaks down, it bleeds into the other. They went as far as to say that 75% of people polled. They believe trust is falling in institutional authorities, meaning most people know and can see that they can't trust places anymore. But it went on to say that, that 64%, 64% of people believe that they can't trust their fellow man. It, it said 64% say that they believe trust is falling interpersonally or faith in their fellow man is declining. It's two-thirds. I bring that up to say what the Pew Research poll says is that when we talk about power and authority, when one is being corrupted, it bleeds into the other. So it makes me, brings me back to this one question. If in our culture, authority and trust is dissolving, what does that do for our faith? What does it do when we say that Jesus is powerful and Jesus is trustworthy? Does that also dissolve along with the trust that's being dissolved in other spaces, in places, in our lives? And so what I want to do is I want to take three weeks and I want to talk about why I think Jesus is trustworthy. Why I think Jesus has earned our trust and earned our trust his place of authority in our lives. And I want to look at it from a little different perspective. So if you get a Bible, go to Hebrews 1, and kind of have a banner verse for this next three weeks when we talk about the trustworthiness of Jesus. And you got to understand the context of Hebrews. Hebrews is a really tough book for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it's really tough is it was written to a fragile population of people. Hebrews was, was written to a group of Jewish believers that started to go back on their faith. For persecution reasons, and for community reasons, and for interpersonal reasons, they felt like they couldn't trust the claims of Jesus anymore. And so Hebrews is written to falling away Christians saying, I'm going to walk back my faith back to Judaism. It is a book about trust. The writer of Hebrews is saying, let me bolster your trust in the authority of Jesus. And he starts the entire book, the first three verses like this. I'll read it um, from the Net Bible. It says... After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What that text does is it actually outlines the entire book. Because what that text does is, it noticed three different phrases in the first three verses. In the last days, he, God, has spoken to us. And then two, he he had accomplished the cleansing for our sins. And he was appointed heir of all things. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you are a good Jewish person, you recognize what the writer was doing there. Those three phrases hearken Jewish readers back to the Old Testament structure for authority. Prophet, priest, and king. And so what Jesus is doing, what the Hebrew writer is trying to prove, is that Jesus is worth trusting because he is your ultimate authority in the authority structure you understand. He is the ultimate prophet, he is the ultimate priest, and he is the ultimate king. Eusebius was a church father in the 3rd century, and in the 4th century. He actually became the bishop of Caesarea around 314 A.D. Um, He was known for being a Christian historian and one of the brightest minds of his time, theologically and otherwise. And, And he actually worked out this threefold office comparison to Jesus in one of his writings. He says, and we have been told also that certain of the prophets themselves became, by the act of anointing, Christ's in type. So that all these have reference to the true Christ, that divinely inspired and heavenly word who is the only high priest of all and the only king of every creature and the Father's only supreme prophet of prophets. This this office, this threefold office of, of prophet, priest, and king is a major doctrinal standard in the Old Testament authority for how people related to God and then in the New Testament as we see it fulfilled in Jesus. John Calvin writes about it. John Wesley writes about it over and over and over again. Because really, what, what that office does is it encapsulates how people relate to the divine. So prophets speak for God, and priests speak to God, and then kings model God's rightly ordered world to the rest of their kingdom, it encompasses how you see God at work in all the spaces and places around you. And in the Old Testament, prophets told you what God wanted you to know for now and tomorrow, and and priests related to God for you because they believed you couldn't do that in the Old Testament. A priest could, and that's next week. And then kings were always meant to model God's goodness to their people, which If you read the Old Testament, they failed woefully at. And so the Hebrew writer is picking up on the authoritarian structure in the Old Testament, and he's saying, hey, before you turn back, trust me when I say Jesus is the best. Prophet, priest, and king. And today we're going to talk about Jesus as a prophet and why I think that matters. So when we talk about prophets, we have to acknowledge that that's not an exclusive claim to Christianity. All religious sects and followings have prophets, right? If you're a um, a follower of Islam, you have Muhammad, if you are a follower of of, of the, um, uh, the David Koresh movement, right, in Waco, if you follow the Branch Davidians, even if you go farther, you have Joseph Smith, when you talk about a certain sect of people that believe in another kind of religion, you have different prophets for different religions, because really what they do is just reveal to people who God is and what he said. And they're littered throughout the Old Testament. That's how God spoke to his people. The role of prophets shared the character of God to the people of God that felt like they needed to know God. And God raised up prophets all throughout the Old Testament. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus as being a better prophet. And prophets were really charged with three different responsibilities. One is they spoke for God today. They they sat there and told people, thus says the Lord, if you got that good old King James in you, you know? Thus says the Lord. And then they said, this is what God has to say to you. And a lot of times it was repent or die. Or sometimes it was give grace, or sometimes it was return to the land and be obedient. And then also they, they told you about what was going to happen. If you don't do this, then this. It's a lot of the pre-exile period in the Old Testament when the prophets would call his people to obey because if they didn't, they would be taken over. So prophets told you about things happening today that God wanted you to know about. They told you about things happening tomorrow that God wanted you to know about. And finally, they showed you who God was in your midst. And what that looks like in the Old Testament is miracles. You can look throughout the scriptures, but most prophets, especially major prophets, perform miracles. And a lot of writers and theologians and rabbis say all prophets perform miracles, even if they're not written down in the scriptures. And really, all miracles do is show us the divine in our presence. They reveal that God is working right here, right now, and paint a picture for what God wants to be, whether that's a healing, or whether that's a victory, or whether that's more flower, like one story in the Old Testament. It's revealing God's desired kingdom in a broken space. My favorite story about kind of that, that paints a picture of the street, there's a story about Elijah, and um, he's on the run, and he's being chased by uh, Syria, and, and they want him dead. He's got an assistant with him. And one morning the assistant wakes up and he sees that, that they are surrounded by the army. And Elijah prays, God opened his eyes, and, and the assistant then sees all of these angels everywhere all around him that, that overwhelm the armies of Syria that are in that space and place. And so what we see is the prophet's job is to show people God working right here, right now, to show people God in their midst. And so I want to walk through real quick those three litmus tests for prophets and, and show you how Jesus ranks. Because in a Jewish mindset, the most famous prophet was Moses. One Jewish encyclopedia said that there are more legends about Moses than any other biblical figure. Moses was the champion of the Jewish people. He delivered them from oppression in Egypt after 400 years. He gave them the law, which was their headlining point is a people group. It's what they stood on. The New Testament, a lot of it is about Jewish people saying, we're better than you because we have the law. And then Paul specifically saying, no, you're not. You all need Jesus. That can preach right here, right now, right? And so what you have is really these these people that said, I'm going to go back to another prophet in Moses, in the law. But Jesus comes along, right? So let's look at what Jesus did. Jesus, first and foremost, like all of the prophets, he spoke the words that God had for them today. John 14, 24, Jesus says... These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. But but the way Jesus talks about the Word of God is different than the way everybody else talked about the Word of God. And it's, it's better. and And we see that from people that not only follow Jesus, but from people that don't. Mark 1, it says, When Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people there were amazed at his teachings. When it says the people there, they're talking about um, Pharisees and Sadducees and other people that weren't in the group of followers of Jesus. They said that they were amazed by his teaching because he taught them like, I love this, one who had authority, not experts of the law. And, and when it says one who had authority there, it doesn't just mean confidence. Confidence. When we talk about authority in speaking, a lot of times it's, I have charisma and I have confidence, and so it seems like I know what I'm talking about. There's a, a TED Talk out there, and it, it literally says nothing the whole time, but the whole purpose of the TED Talk is to show you that the way you communicate signals to people that it's important, even if what you're saying is not important. It's really a fascinating study of communication. That's not what this means here. When it said that Jesus taught with authority, it means that he didn't reference anybody else. In the Jewish tradition— When you spoke about the law of Moses, which is what he's speaking about, you referenced other people to make your case stronger. I do it all the time. I quote people all throughout the sermon so that you guys will think I'm smarter than I really am. I I quote other people to bolster the case that we're making for whatever we're talking about in the Scripture that has been true for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus doesn't do that. He cites himself. And so when it says... That he has authority, it really means that he doesn't reference other people's interpretation of the law. He speaks like he knows it. And if you believed in Jesus or didn't believe in Jesus, you couldn't deny His authority in teaching. But it goes farther, Jesus goes farther, and he says, it's not just because I know the law, it says because the law was about me the whole time. He says in Matthew 5:17, "I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. that's the whole Old Testament. I've come to fulfill them." that it finds its fullness in me. So I speak with authority as a prophet because it was all about me all along. And we see that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It's when God outlines the role of prophet for his people. He said, there will be one coming that you need to listen to, referencing Jesus to Moses. Also, when you talk about the prophetness, the speakingness of the word of God to the people of God, you have to recognize that Jesus himself is literally called the Word of God in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, took up residence among us, talking about the incarnation of Jesus. So really when we talk about a prophet being somebody that tells us about God's message for today, that's all Jesus did, and he did it better than anybody else. He did it better than Moses, and he did it better than all the rabbis, and Elijah, and Elisha, and all the other prophets of the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is the pinnacle of being a prophet. Prophets were measured by a couple things, too. They were measured by their impact and their influence on the world around them. There's a story in Acts 5, where um, some of Jesus' followers is after Jesus resurrected and and went back to be with God in heaven. And, And in Acts 5, these Jewish leaders are having a hard time with followers of Jesus. And they want to squash the movement. And one of the highly respected Pharisees stands up at the end of Acts 5 named Gamaliel, and he says, hey look, I stop." He says, he quotes a couple other references where people claim to be of God. He said, if this is a man thing, it'll die. Don't worry about it. It will die. It can't sustain the weight of this over time. If, if it's of God, then we can't stop it anyway. And so what you see with Jesus when you talk about the influence and the impact of him as a prophet is his message continued on. He took 12 people, 12 people, and he started a movement that by 300 AD would go from 12 people to the dominant and then mandated religious ethic of the entire world at that point. Think about that. Nothing has ever come close to doing it. And it was comprised of mostly, not influential, wealthy people, but mostly slaves and poor people and women that society had not really cared for. There's a great book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity where he kind of outlines how it happened in some really, really beautiful ways. And so when you talk about Jesus' impact as a prophet because he spoke the words of God to the people of God, it cannot be compared or paralleled by anyone or anything else. Historian Philip Schiff described the overwhelming influence of Jesus in the subsequent histories of the world. He said, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on the things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of, of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise in the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Jesus spoke to the people of God the words of God better than anybody else. But, but like all prophets, he didn't stop with just saying, this is God's message for you here now. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, because God told me it, it's a way to validate his propheticness. So when he talks about kind of the things that were going to happen, he, he speaks to things that hadn't happened yet. So you can go there and look them up yourself, but Jesus foretold his future. He told the disciples of his pending death numerous times. He foretold Judas's betrayal. He foretold Peter's denial of him, he foretold the persecution of his followers, he even foretold Peter how he would die at one point. He he foretold things like the destruction of the temple, a real-life thing that happened in A.D. 70. And he foretold his coming return, which we're still waiting on, and we can have confidence in the waiting because of all the other stuff that has taken place. One of the ways you measured a prophet was by if what they said about God's future actually came into reality, and for Jesus it did, time and time again. And so when you talk about the tomorrow that Jesus talked about, we still see it today. He sat down with his groups of disciples right before he went back into heaven, and he said, guys, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in this world, and you're going to start a movement that won't die. And when you look at the nature of how true that is, not just then, but but now, 2,000 years and change later, you can't deny that Jesus' words were good and great, and he did a better job of speaking the words of God to the people of God then, and then also about now. There are so many things that Jesus spoke into, but, but we just look at some stats if you want to. Regardless of what your belief system is, there is more stuff about Jesus than anybody else. Let me break that down a little bit. But, but when we say stuff, I mean, I mean literally stuff, Right? Uh, I mean that there are more books written about Jesus, about Jesus, not just the Bible. There are more paintings of Jesus, there are more songs about Jesus than any other figure in the history of the world. But let's get to the Bible, the words of Jesus, the words spoken about Jesus as our prophet. And if you just compare stats, one writer, he found that um, in the last 50 years, the Bible sold, he says, a whopping 3.9 billion copies And he said, the next book, the next book down came in second with 820 million copies. And then the third book came in with 400 million copies. Look at that variation. The third one, by the way, was Harry Potter, right? That's where we're at as a people group. And I've never read it, but I've read the Bible, so there you go. There's billions of people that represent followers of Jesus from all over the world. Estimates, say, around 2 billion people in the world are followers of Jesus or call themselves Christians. It's literally how we parse and divide history by the person and work of Jesus yesterday and today. This is the future that he talked about. And then finally, he didn't just do a better job of saying, this is what God says and this is what God will do. He did a better job of showing them who God was in their midst, the miracles. I love what C.S. Lewis says about miracles. He says, Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. It's a good quote because I think that's exactly what it looks like to show people God working in the midst. That's what the prophets did when they did miracles. They said, this is what God is up to and this is what he desires. And so in the Gospels, we see Jesus specifically written down, do just around 40 miracles. But, but at the end of John, the last book in John's Gospel, which is a Gospel that has different signs scattered throughout, he says this, there are so many other things Jesus did. If they were all written down, each of them one by one, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. So the end of his gospel speaks to the continuing work of Jesus, not just that time and place, but there's so many things that he did, spoke, and miracles that he accomplished to show people God in their midst. It's why he had such a big crowd following him around. He started healing people and saying, this is what it looks like For restored creation. Let me show it to you. And it's gonna look like your soul and forgiveness, but it's also gonna look like your body working like I designed it to work to look like and work like from the beginning. It's a restored creation. It's God's picture of the world that He wants to be working in our midst. That's what miracles were. And so this is what I love about Jesus is, is literally the miracles that he did then continue now. There are many writers that talk about the biggest miracle of all being a changed life. The the quote that we love, that I love from Kierkegaard, God creates out of nothing wonderful, you say, yes, to be sure, but he does what is still more beautiful. He makes saints out of sinners. (laughs) I love that quote. Because what we see every time we see a changed life, what we see every time we see somebody trust Jesus and move their eternal fate from the negative to the positive, from hell to heaven, from a, an eternity without God to an eternity with the God they were designed to be with in the first place, every time we see that, we see the miraculous. Every time we see that, we see our ability to trust in the prophet of God who spoke for God, who spoke about what God was going to do in the, in the future, and who showed us God working right here, right now. We see it. I see life's changed. I see, I see the picture that God wants to paint in this world being different than the world we live in. Like I said at the beginning, we've seen it with churches standing up against injustice in the last couple of weeks as we claim this is not the world that God wants to be. This is not the world that God's bringing back. This is not the world that God created. We stand up for justice because it represents the world that, that Jesus proclaimed because he was the greatest prophet. So all that's said and done. Why are we saying Jesus is a prophet, and, and what does it matter for my life right now? Well, simply put, I think we have a disintegration of trust in our society. I think that we don't trust people anymore, individually and corporately. I think we've seen power be corrupted and authority be abusive. But I go back to Jesus, and I have to remember that he's different than those powers. I have to remember that he's different than all the other prophets that I read about and come across. All the other people that say, let me show you who God is and speak for God about today, tomorrow, and show you God right here, right now. He's different. And so when I realize that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is trustworthy as a prophet. His authority is good. His power is perfect. What he's saying is he's saying Jesus is perfect as a prophet to tell you about God today, about what God's going to do tomorrow is he's recapturing his creation and reconciling all things and fighting for justice. And he's saying, hey, look around and look at the people whose lives have been changed by following Jesus. And you see the miracles that he's creating every single day. Don't miss those because they're easy to look past. And so why is Jesus important to know as a prophet? Because it reminds me of his authority in my life. (laughs) It reminds me that when I need to know about who God is, I go to the ultimate prophet. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't go back because you have the best that's here. Jesus is the prophet sent by God to show you God. Listen. So next week we're going to talk about Jesus as a priest, how he speaks to God for us. But know this week that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, that he tells us about God. And I hope that as we listen, we begin to cast the vision of God's reality in our world and that the trust that we have in Jesus doesn't dissipate just because the trust we have in other things might. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're trustworthy. Jesus, I'm thankful that you're a trustworthy prophet, that what you said had authority, impact, and influence, that it had staying power, that we see a larger footprint of Jesus in our world now than than the disciples did then, and, and, and it gives us confidence knowing full well that the movement of Jesus can't go anywhere because it is not of man, it is of God. So as we think about Jesus as a prophet, might it build our authority? Might it build our confidence, our trust in the authority of Jesus and not tear it down? Might we fight against all the places where we've seen authority be abusive. Might we remember that Jesus is good. And as we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, prophet, priest, and king, um, we remember the world in which he's calling us to live into and look forward to. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.